Tonight on This Is Vinyl Tap, doing like a morning dove. What's for dinner? Fathering Toto and Playboys in Florida. I can't stop loving you. I've made up my mind to live in me. In 1948, Columbia Records introduced the 33 and a third RPM long player record. One year later, RCA Victor introduced the 45 RPM single. Listeners now had a choice, only the hits or the full album. In the last half of the 60s, the best bands realized the potential of the longer format and began to build a cohesive body of music that must be heard unbroken. The arrival of downloadable music has increased the temptation to stay in the shallow end with the hits. This podcast believes every album tells a story. Tonight, we tell one of those stories. Well, here we are again. This is Vinyl Tap, and I'm joined with Jonathan J.M. Rowe, the producer. Coming at you live from Estes Park, Colorado this week. That's right. He's up being the good son in Estes Park, saving his parents and uh, enjoying the snow. Tony Slagle is coming to us, as usual, from his South Austin closet. (laughs) That is that is not a joke. I am, in fact, in my South Austin closet. Um, (laughs) The fan. Yes. With the fan. The fan is off. And he's from. uh, What was it? It was stuffy. It was stuffy. It's a little stuffy in this closet, yes. <laughs> but his his wife's home, so he's limited to the closet. Um, <laughs> and and we're glad to have her. And we actually have a closet. new yes. There's there's a new wife on the scene. Oh, that's right. I uh, congratulations to Doug. Yeah, congrats, I Doug. I got married, and she is perfect. She has done nothing wrong. All the arguments that we have were caused by me. All right. Um, <laughs> get that out of the way. That's probably as far as she'll ever listen to one of these. Um, I need to say a little bit about tonight's album. Tonight we're taking on, uh, I've already confessed to being over my head, taking on an artist of this level, but we are taking on Ray Charles and his albums and his uh album uh, the modern sounds of country and western music i believe that's his most highly regarded album and one of his top selling albums uh probably the best selling album he had until he died and they came up with uh the genius loves company yeah that's the uh that album genius loves company is the only other album other than this one that went number one it's his only the only his only two number one albums which is surprising, given his status in everybody's mind. Um, Tony, I have a very serious question for you. All right. Is this a country and Western album? No. Okay. 
Okay, I thought that was only existing in my head. No, 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 no. <laughs> but the, but there's uh, there's a reason for that. Uh, Ray Charles, you know, grew up listening to country music. His uh, he, he grew up listening to the Grand Old Opry. He's he said in multiple interviews that it was just played in his head all the time. Um, so country music was part of who he was. He actually in 1947 was uh, was in a band called the Florida Playboys, um, and they were a, a, a according to him, a hillbilly band. Uh, he says uh, that it only took one audition to convince those guys that he was he was worth having in the band. And they hired him, no questions asked about race or anything, because they were all white guys. And uh, and they played in only white honky-tonks. Um, he wasn't in the band for very long, but he he in while he was in the band, he learned how to yodel. Um, he sang lead on a couple of songs. Um, and, uh, and it made a mark on him and country music kind of got into his, under his skin and, uh, and stayed there for a significant, uh, amount of time, um, to come out here. But what I was going to say is, I, I think what, why this, why this isn't a country album is he treated, what he did was, um, he got the producer, Sid Feller, he got Sid Feller to collect all these songs, like 150, 200 country songs, old and modern. And I think what he did, Doug, is he treated them like a songbook. He's like, I'm going to pick this song. I'm going to pick this song. I'm going to pick this song and I'm going to do it my way. So he 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 understood the importance of what these songs represented and 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 what they meant to a lot of people. But he wasn't going to just do Ray Charles doing a country country album. He's even said he didn't want to be the first country black country artist. He wanted to do country songs and do them his way and and, and kind of reinterpret them. Uh, there's a couple of songs on this album that I think sound significantly more country than the other ones, and we can get to those when we get to them. But that uh, that's kind of a roundabout way to explain why this is not a country album, even though it's called Modern Sounds and Country and Western Music. I I think parts of this um, album swing better than uh, a lot of swing bands do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that's there's, a, there's a big chunk of this. It's a swing album. Am, am I making that up or is that right? No, I think I think there was a, you know, um, and I don't know if we want to get into this now or if this is something we're going to progress into. But this was a not long after he switched labels. Um, yeah. He was with Atlantic for a it was while. His and first switched. album after leaving Atlantic, is that correct? I don't yeah. think so. I think he did. I think he did a couple of other albums for for but, ABC. Um, but the first Paramount. single that he did for ABC Paramount was uh, Georgia on My Mind. Georgia, Georgia. The whole day through Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind Georgia on my mind And that's when he was introduced to uh, Sid Feller. He was the one who did all the arrangements and everything for it. And, and we should say something uh, to our audience about this. This album came out in 1962, which pushes it ahead of uh, Sam Cooke and Bob Dylan. And this yeah. is now the oldest album we've ever covered. And going earlier than 62 to find something uh, that represents a cohesive package of music would be be pretty tough. 
Yeah, I think I think and I think it's important to note as well. These are all cover songs. These aren't there's not an, yeah. there's one that's a traditional one that he kind of arranged, but well, he arranged all of them, but they're all cover songs. But what you just said was a, is absolutely true, Doug. This is this is something he sat down to create as a cohesive whole. This wasn't a collection of singles. In fact, the singles were sort of a surprise to him as big yeah. as they were. Uh, he he wasn't expecting the singles on this album to be that big. In fact, I don't think he expected it to make much money at all. His thought was, um, he uh, he said he said in an inter- I, I read part of his biography, which is pretty interesting, and uh, or his autobiography. Um, he talks about this time frame and how he would have done it earlier when he was with Atlantic, um, but he, he didn't really get around to it. Um, and the reason he didn't do it immediately when he switched over to ABC Paramount was because they had they had they got him because he was a soul singer, an R&B soul singer, and he didn't want to give him something else. But he was on he was on the last last year of his third year contract and um, he wanted to test the waters because he had artistic freedom and control. And he felt like if he if he because he wanted to do an album like this and he thought, OK, here's a test. If I go to them and say, I want to do a, a, an album of country and Western songs, but do them my way, what are they going to do? And if they balk at him, then he's like, OK, well, I won't renew the contract. I'll go out somewhere else. But if they have faith in him, he'll do it. And so he went to mm-hmm. went to the uh, label chiefs and, and presented it. And they rightfully were concerned and said, you know, we really think this is going to have an impact on your fan base. And his response to him was, you're right, it likely will, but I think it's going to make me have fans elsewhere. It's going to be a, it's going to be, a, it's a big risk, but it's going to be a big gain. And, uh, yeah. and he's right. I mean, when this album came out, uh, I don't know if he lost any black music fans, but he gained a whole slew of white music fans. And he, and he mm-hmm. talks later on in his life, how he, that never changed. He primarily played the audiences he played for after this album came out were, were, uh, there were more whites in the audience than there were blacks. So let's go a little bit into, you know, we, we've kind of danced around it a little bit. We've talked about the Florida Playboys. Uh, we've talked about him being on Atlantic Records. But let's kind of get, put a timeline to this. So he originally was born in, was it Florida? Is that where he was originally He was born from? in Georgia and moved to Florida. Yeah. Moved to Florida soon after that. His mom was very sickly, but she had uh, had another son, younger um, and she was uh, would take in other people's laundry, and so she was work, living in but this kind of uh, community. Ray Charles' dad was a real. They do know who he is. Um, yeah, did know who he is. But, but he was uh, working on the railroad, and he was an absent father. And uh, yeah. Ray Charles. We should mention that Ray Charles, the actual name was Ray Charles uh, Robinson. Um, yeah. But there was another Ray Robinson that he didn't want to be confused with. That would that was Sugar, the Ray reason Robinson he gave for uh, yeah. So he not, um, not wanting to. Uh, he says ain't no sugar here. <laughs> he was not wanting to be confused <laughs> with that. Uh, anyway, all right. So then he uh, uh, his brother his mother like I said was a uh, took in other people's laundry and uh, they kind of would. Um, live from place to place in the community, that Florida community. And one of the guys that they would sometimes take up with was a guy who owned kind of a general store in that community. And he had a piano in there. And so he started teaching uh, Ray Charles some piano licks on it. And Ray 
became uh, adept at the piano. When Ray would live over at that house, he'd practice the piano more. And uh, but then there would be times when his mom wasn't there and he'd walk over to the general store and get to play the piano. So he eventually, because he, he lost his sight, I think he started losing it when he was four. And by the time he was six, he was totally, totally blind. Uh, they say one of the last, if you believe the uh, movie, one of the last things he ever saw was his uh, younger brother drowning in one of his mother's wash tubs. Um, that did happen, but we don't know if he ever actually saw it. Um, and then he, uh, got to go to this school for uh, the deaf and blind. Why they put the deaf and blind kids together, I'll never understand. But one of the things he got to do while he was there was study music. And he learned to read music uh, through, bra- by, uh, through Braille. So they had uh, one of the teachers there introduced him to reading music through Braille. And that's how he learned and, how to read me, music. That, that outweighs all the rest of the accomplishments <laughs> in his life. Just yeah. learning to read music uh, is impressive to me, but learning to read it and with your fingers is yeah is and then he he also learned to play four instruments while I was there the trumpet, clarinet, saxophone, and he already knew the piano and just improved on that and he uh, I believe he learned uh, classical uh, tunes. Yeah, he got uh, to, he got a guy to. named Bach and a guy named Mozart yeah. that he picked up some of their tunes. He was fascinated by Bach's use of counterpoint. Um, and uh, so he yeah he was supposedly a very good interpreter of Bach a lot that's what four instruments yeah which is incredible and and none of them are even the bass so it's even yeah. more impressive <laughs> he probably could have played bass if he wanted to probably oh, yeah. but he had options that's yeah. the point <laughs> so why is that that school his uh his mother dies and so at that point he was kind of despondent, obviously, you know, after your mom dies I and mean, he was 14 years old, I think he hung around the school for a little bit longer, but then he just decided, you know, I'm, I need to start making some money. Uh, I'm going to start seeing if I can be a, make it as a piano player. So I think that's when he started like bumming around. Did you go to Miami and start trying to play there? Um, and I think he tried to play at different locations throughout the South that would allow black guys to, to play with them but then yeah so then he started playing with the uh the florida playboys he wasn't with them for very long but that it had a, a lasting impact on him that along with the grand old opry uh made him realize that uh country music and blues music rhythm and blues music shares a lot of the same qualities and so he just started thinking of this stuff as music and what he really liked about country were the stories that were, you know, being told by these songs. Um, you know, not necessarily the twang, although I'm sure he liked that too. But it was what he really liked was just the the depth of character in these songs and 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 you know the heartbreak in them and and all of this stuff really really spoke to him. And uh, 
And again, he found a similarity of that with the blues. And so he off, he often said that there wasn't a, wasn't a whole lot of distinction between the two of the, th- the things. And, and so it was only natural for him to be inclined to want to play both. Uh, then he eventually ends up in Seattle. And I guess that's yeah. where most people would consider his recording career to begin. Yeah, and so, uh, he meets a younger musician who eventually became um, – Famous uh, Quincy Jones in Seattle. Fifteen-year-old Jones. Quincy Quincy Jones. If you will uh, check out some of the interviews with Quincy Jones, he has an extraordinarily high opinion of uh, Ray Charles. And uh, anyone who's listened to uh, to Quincy Jones talk about other musicians, including the Beatles, will realize that. He feels free to not have a high opinion about people. That is absolutely true. That. <laughs> that is absolutely true. Yeah. He I is not. There's a story that he replaced. Yeah. He replaced a Ringo on a session. Yeah, he replaced Ringo on a session, but he didn't tell Ringo that he did it. Ringo <laughs> thought that he actually nailed the part. <laughs> <laughs> he never told Ringo until yeah years later. <laughs> so of course Quincy Jones is a. Uh, a huge phenomenon in American music. And uh, he was 16. I think Ray was uh, 18 and they met and up there and uh, became lifelong friends. Qu- uh, Quincy Jones, what was he? He was a trumpet player at the time. I believe. Yeah. A trumpet player at the time. And Yeah, he went on to work with uh, Frank Sinatra, and he introduced uh, Frank Sinatra to Ray Ray Charles. And uh, the quote from Frank Sinatra is, there's only one musician in the world who could be called a genius, and that is Ray Charles. And boy, boy, did they use that tag. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, they made made hay with that. They sure yeah. did. Genius this, genius that. And it's hard to, it's hard to um, argue it. I mean, I think Doug touched on this um, when he talks about, you know, our our depth of knowledge and how dangerously close we're skirting to that talking about someone like Ray Charles. But, um, you know, I think in context of this album, we can we can handle it. We yeah. can do it, but I do want to clarify what you're saying a little bit, and that is that um, we're we're getting into what I would call serious music, which yeah. would include uh, classical music or jazz. And Ray Charles is um, he's providing us with an album that we can understand, but he's also coming at it with a talent and a skill level that would be comparable to uh, the serious jazz musicians that in our good yeah. sense has kept us from commenting on in the past. Yeah. Spo- yeah. Spoiler alert. There's probably not many jazz albums in our future. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyone waiting for me to talk about Coltrane or anybody else <laughs> like that? All I'm going to say is wow. And refer you to the videos <laughs> that explain that explain what they're actually doing because yeah. I know I know when I'm uh, 
10 feet uh, over my head. Yeah, so there's a couple of things that happened at this point. He got signed. Eventually, you know, he tooled around. He actually tried to, he became an arranger for some folks. He became a pianist for other folks. He actually tried out for some uh, bigger bands that he didn't make the cut for. Uh, God knows why that happened. But then he eventually got signed uh, to a, a Atlantic and and he started writing his own songs, but he also started covering some uh, some songs and uh, became just kind of like known as the uh, well, there's before the Godfather of Soul, there was Ray Charles and he was probably the guy that was just most associated with uh, soul music. And he was also one of the first guys to um, use the studio. Uh, he was one of the first guys to record on an eight track recorder and let you guys know the Beatles didn't even record on an eight track recorder until um, the white album. So he discovered all these cool things that he could do in the studio with his own voice. instruments he figured out he could play a lot of the instruments himself uh he could get the raylets to sing multiple parts and who um, are they jam the raylets were a a backup group that he met at the what was it the newport jazz festival and he uh brought them on to be his backup singers and rechristened them the raylets can't remember what their original name were, but they you can hear them on most of those soul albums that he cut for Atlantic Records. Well, and just real quick, since you talked about him being the the sort of the father of soul, um, at the same time there was another guy who we've already talked about who was sort of on the other spectrum of that soul um, range, and that's Sam Cooke. So I think Sam Cooke and Ray Charles are considered to be kind of the pillars of of that modern soul movement. One was Ray Charles, which is much more kind of grittier in a way. Yeah. Uh, that's not to disparage him at all, because, you know, his voice is something else. But then you had the what they termed, and I don't, this seems odd, but they termed sweet soul, which is what Sam Cooke did. Darling, you sent me, I know you. That's not odd. He's sweet. His voice is yeah. sweet. And Ray's isn't. And uh, I don't, this is the last time I'm going to probably say anything about Billy Joel. And it may be the last time I ever say anything nice about Billy Joel. Uh, <laughs> but he had uh, in an interview, he described Ray Charles as voice. And I think it was perfect. He said, it's like an old tube amp. And yeah. one of the tubes is not screwed in all the way. Well, and be a little late. It's coming yeah. in and out every now and then. And he says, yeah. it, that makes it fascinating to listen to. And I well, think that's true. And if you talk about uh, Sam Cooke, 
uh, that guy doesn't have any <laughs> any uh, <laughs> tubes. Going in. That guy's just plain flat out uh, doing whatever the hell he wants. I, um, I, I will say this, and you guys know how much I just fell all over myself talking about Sam Cooke's voice in that episode we did. Um, go back and listen to it if you haven't listened to it yet. It's it's a, a pretty good one. Final tap. We appreciate yep. their participation in this podcast. Um, but there's a there's a song or two on this album, on this Modern Sounds album, where Ray Charles is doing some vocal acrobatics and his voice is just yeah absolutely fantastic. Just yeah, fantastic. Just, I think I just, know which song you're talking about. You yeah. just sit there and listen to what he's doing. It's like, oh, God, this is so great. Um, yeah. So... So he could do it, but you're right. Well, I, and, 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 and the difference, I think another difference, as much as I love Sam Cooke's voice, and I do, I think it's, I think he's the greatest singer of the 20th century. Uh, Ray Charles uh, can be, can be more interesting from time to time to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Probably to a lot of people. Hey, mama, don't you treat me wrong. Come and love you, daddy, all night long, all night. I think part of it was he was also just a, a a great musician and he he knew I mean he may have been a little bit better musician than Sam Cooke. Um you know he could he could arrange, he could he was um I, I mean I love his piano playing and he he uh, as we were talking about earlier he could play more than one instrument. And uh he we was also that Sam Cooke was a better driver though. <laughs> God. <laughs> Oh my lord! <laughs> but you know, it, it, and so uh, I think there's something that happens when you can actually play one of the instruments and one of the lead instruments, like um, you know Ray Charles on uh, what I say playing that Warlitzer. Yeah. Um, it, it, there's just something that yeah that there's there's Ray like, coming uh, off. When we were listening to Sam Cooke, he he brought in an organ uh, player that was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah. With Ray Charles, he brought himself in and, yeah. and took that place. He, he a lot of fun. Yeah, he went from Atlantic. He went to ABC. Well, he, built, he pretty much built that label. Yep. And uh, supposedly when he left, uh, Arnold Eglin, the head of Atlantic Records, said that was uh, he was very happy that Ray Charles got such a lucrative deal. Shook his hand and said... I would have done the same thing. Did he boohoo? I don't think he boohooed. Well, and and before, you know, before he, uh, I think it's worth mentioning that he actually cut some country songs while he was on Atlantic. Uh, the most notable one being the one he did right before he left, which is I'm Moving On, which is an old Hank Snow song. I want you, baby, from time to time, but you just want to listen. I'll pay me no mind, so I'm moving on. Um, it it hit it hit the number forty on the pop single charts and number eleven on the R and B charts. Uh, and his his Ray Charles version has got maracas in it. And it's got kind of a more you know funky feel to it. Um, but 
it's not you know and it's not like that song was unknown to people who would have been listening to it that song i'm moving on was a nut was was hank snow's first number one single and was was essentially got him on the grand old opry so ray charles is not it's not like he pulled some hidden gem from someplace he's covering a song that was very very well known at the time and a country song that was very very well known do you all think we can agree that people that don't listen to hank snow probably hate their own guts yes yes (laughs) And, and uh, what's what's even even funnier was I found this found this clip and we're we're gonna probably drop it in here um, where uh, Ray Charles is talking to uh, the, that co-founder of Atlantic. What's his name? JM. I can never pronounce his name Airmark right. England. Airmark England. I think. England. And, and, it, and this is in this is in 1953, and they're sitting down in a rehearsal studio or, or studio whatever, and rehearsing, and they're just talking. And Ray Charles starts bringing up the Florida Playboys and what he used to do. And he said, yeah, we used to even play the Kentucky Waltz. And then he goes into this rendition of the Kentucky Waltz. Uh, Listen to this. Bill Monroe song, uh, yeah. probably his Bill Monroe's most successful song. I think it hit number three or four on the charts. Um, yeah. So even then, in 1953, he was st- he was it, just talking to the co-founder Atlantic. He slides into a country song. So country music meant a lot to the guy. Yeah, yeah. It's, it would be wrong to feel like he was reaching far from his base to uh, bring something new in here. This was. Something new to the label, but not something new to uh, Ray Charles. And I and I think I think hindsight people have put importance on on this album a, a different kind of importance that I think Ray Charles even put on it. Ray Charles has said he wasn't trying to do something uh, out of the ordinary or do or make a statement. You know, his only expectation he said he didn't even think the the album would do well financially um like i said earlier it was more of a test of his his uh his ability to make his own choices for the label all he wanted to do was be true to he says this is a quote i want to be true to myself and i want to be true to the music um so he wasn't he wasn't trying to make this statement about a, a black musician doing white music or any of that so i mean i i'm not i'm not going to be fool enough to not think he wasn't thinking about crossover success to sure. the extent, extent that he thought he would but he wasn't trying to make some grand statement when he did this and I don't people, think he had yeah no people put a whole lot 
in hindsight, they put a whole lot on this album being groundbreaking. And, and, yeah. and maybe it was. Maybe it was. I wasn't around in 1962. But it wasn't on purpose, bro. It was not on purpose at all. And and I can't think of anybody who was less involved in what's black and what's white yeah. at this time period than Ray Charles. He just does not go there. Yeah. Um, he, well, I, I don't hear him express interest in any of that. What what he did do is what a lot of musicians who had artistic control and the ability and the freedom to do this. Not not every black musician had the freedom to do this, but he had the wherewithal, the money and the freedom to when he found out a place he was playing was segregated. He just refused to play it and would pay off right. the contract um, and, and would play it, there. But doesn't it seem like uh, I know he did that uh, um, numerous times, but it seemed like he talks about doing that a lot less than. Oh, no, no, no. You're right. It people. was. It was it was more of a yeah it was more of a I'm I I'm gonna do this because this feels wrong to me yeah. and not not a kind of chest beating thing but I mean it had an impact he was uh, right you know he was one of the first musicians Sam Cooke was another one that they stopped playing these segregated places and uh, and kind of changed the way you know if you got Ray Charles booked and a bunch of people buying tickets and and there and then he he says I'm not playing because of this. Uh, you know, there, there's stories about yeah. these audiences being segregated at the beginning of shows, and by the end of the show, they're all standing together, playing and dancing together. Right. A lot, of, a lot of the people in these audiences, while the music was playing, didn't care about skin color. Um, and so, I think, I, I think if you're if you're making people angry who want to see this music because you can't change something so they can see it live, it had an impact, and it you know yeah, might have been. I think that's right. Yeah, and, and, and I, have, I do have to say that. Uh, doing research for this, the the number of times Sam Cooke and uh, Ray Charles bumped into each other during my re, uh, research is pretty high. Okay, right. anybody want to talk about the album? Sure, sure. Well, we got side one. It starts with Bye Bye Love. There goes my baby with someone new. She sure looked happy and I'm so blue. Was my baby till he stepped in. Goodbye to romance that might have been. Can I can I say something about this song? We we say this sometimes. Uh, this song. <laughs> This doesn't sound like a guy who's really sad to be saying bye bye love. I've never understood why this song is so peppy, even when the evolution. I'm through go. with romance. <laughs> hey, I'm through. Yeah, it's, it's almost it's, it's, one of it's songs so where the tune yeah. and the lyrics don't match at all. Yeah. Well, it's definitely not maudlin like the like the Everly Brothers version is. It's a blast. Um, and and, and yeah. we say this a lot. It's a great way to start the album out. But I mean, maybe the point here is that he's you know. He's okay with say, you know kicking whoever to the side. He's okay with it. Um, he knows uh, that know, there's I, gonna. I I I myself cannot relate to being excited to say goodbye to a loved one. I'm sure there's guys out there who feel that way that would feel a sense of relief. <laughs> well, and this is this is kind of his way of showing this band off too, which is what another thing he wanted to do with this right. album is show this band off. Um, I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but one of the reasons we're experts on this album was uh, that one of the trumpet players, Martin Banks, was born and raised. And, and, and then uh, after he, he lived in Austin for a while, he moved away and he played played with Duke Ellington and Count Basie and James Brown and B.B. King. Uh, 
Dizzy Gillespie, and then he comes back and moves back to Austin in 88 and does teaches in elementary schools and played at the elephant room, which is a bar down on South Congress um, wow. or not South Congress, I guess Congress. Um, I can't believe but, he go back to teaching band in ele- elementary school. I mean, that- but, but, you know, it's one of the reasons we're an expert is because, uh, because of that, you know, an Austin trumpet it player. Sounds on like, album. Man, when I hear this, uh, when I hear this band backing them up, I think it's Count Basie. It sounds- I do too. I, I, that's one of my things that I have in my notes. It's like this half the time. This sounds like Count Basie. All that Sometimes energy like, and explosions. Yeah. Well, have you place. have you have you looked at it? There's um, there's four trumpeters on this album. There's two yeah. alto saxes, one baritone sax. There's six guys that play tenor sax. Uh, there's a trombone, uh, you know, bass, drum, guitar. But the wow. brass section of this band is giant. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. I didn't know it was that big. It didn't tell yeah. me that big. Like, yeah. Wow. Well, um, um, I'm going to go ahead and declare Bye Bye Love a not country song. <laughs> I'm going to declare it a, a really hot swing number on this album. And yeah. it's a lot but of it, fun. It is. It uh, went, I would love to see it live. When right. uh, when the, the Everly Brothers did it, it reached what? Number two on the pop charts and but it also charted on the country charts i think i think what doug is saying is that on this album it's not a country song <laughs> oh not one bit and i almost thought that he the first time i heard it like i almost thought it was sacrilege the way he was doing it but then i started going you know maybe there's kind of a little tongue-in-cheek thing going on there like, i think he's yeah. just having fun yeah i do too and i think he uh, liked the song and he's like you know what this this lends itself this to me knocking this thing out of the park yeah you know what bob will said you can change the tune ah! of an old song oh rearrange it and make it swing oh, right. <laughs> i'm sorry i thought he said aha he said that a lot <laughs> anyway i love that song um yeah, it's fantastic. And, uh, anybody that wants to listen to that song to be depressed about their uh, loved one leaving them, you're gonna have to find another song because that's like your Family song. Brothers version. <laughs> yeah. Then we go to uh, "You Don't Know Me." You think you know me well, but you don't know me. No, you don't know me. No, you don't know the one who dreams of you at night. So this uh, this was no, this hit number two, I think, on the Billboard Pop charts and number five on the R&B charts, which is, I guess, the definition of a crossover hit, wouldn't you say? That seems uh, upside down. Yeah. I don't know how you do that? But uh, so this was written written by or, or co-written, but I think mostly written by Cindy Walker, who we've talked about on this on the right. podcast before. Yeah. She wrote a lot of songs about about um, or for Bob Wills, uh, yeah. and and was you know just instrumental in in writing really great songs. And this is one of them too. I mean, this is this is what song this is songwriting, man. This guy, you know. Uh, He's he's got a thing for this girl. The girl is friendly with him, and they're good friends. Yeah. But she has no idea how much he cares about her, and yeah. it's just and and Ray Charles singing it really, uh, you know. Here's what's yeah. interesting. Here's another interesting kind of fact about this song. We talked earlier about the only two albums that reached number one for him, which was this one and Jesus Genius Loves Company. This is the only song on both albums. 
Well, yes. I, you know, that's the good thing about a, a lot of these people. Uh, you can choose your podcast from around the world. But if you choose a podcast from Texas, you're going to hear about Bob Wills a lot more than you want to. And we've only <laughs> talked about two songs so far, and he's come up both times. That's true. That's true. That's funny. <laughs> Half as uh, much. I know for a fact that Bob Wills covered this too. Well, uh, if you'd love me half as much as I, I love you, uh, you couldn't worry me half as much as you do. Oh, you're so nice to me. When there's no one else yeah, around. <laughs> well, Curly Williams, almost every song that Curly Williams ever wrote got covered by everybody. Well, this, <laughs> this, was orig- this was first recorded by who? Hank, isn't it? Uh, Hank, yeah. Hank didn't want to record it, but it, it hit. Yeah, he didn't like it. It hit number two on the Billboard singles chart, <laughs> country chart. And he's like, well, maybe I was wrong about that. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, Rosemary Clooney had a number one pop hit with it in nine and 52. And then George Jones and Patsy Cline both recorded it before, before Ray Charles got around to it. Um, this is kind of given his, what I would call his crooner treatment, this song. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this, we this, didn't this, talk this. about that. How he was uh, emulating uh, Nat King Cole at the beginning of his career. Yeah, yeah. And, he, and, that, and I heard some, I heard some uh, tapes of that, and and he does sound a lot like Nat King Cole. Well, and I think that carries off in songs like this, um, where he's kind of giving it that treatment. I mean, the band's swinging behind him, but he's he's yeah. really got that kind of you know that uh, mm-hmm. that definite persona. Um, and this song has a uh, has a really fantastic uh, tenor sax solo in the middle of it. It's oh, just yeah. great. I think Don Wilkerson is the guy who plays the sax on this song, the solo on this song. Yeah, he's one of the few that gets um, mentioned in the liner notes, too. Him, it him is, and- I tell you, have, have we encountered an album where it's harder to find out who's playing what than this one? Well, it takes some digging. It takes some digging, but you can't you can figure it out. You know, the one thing we didn't talk about was who the uh, who the uh, composer or not composers, the conductors were on this stuff and there oh, were yeah. we should probably do that real quick while we're thinking about it so there were three weren't there three conductors on this jam this album uh, uh no, there's there, one guy sid feller did like the overall arrangements gerald wilson did the big band arrangements yeah uh that guy marty pock did the uh string arrangements and then gil fuller just kind of did the like overall here's what we're going to do on this yeah uh, i think some arrangements. I think Marty Potch is also involved with the like the chorus singing the you know the real yeah. kind of uh, something I want to get to in a little later before we dial off the whole country politan aspect of this album. But yeah, uh, we gotta talk about that. 
But uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, uh, Marty Potts, the guy who did the strings, conducted the string arrangements on this album and several other albums, was the he's the father of the founding a founding member and the principal songwriter of the band Toto. So <laughs> you have you have uh, and the if, string. If you're one of the young people out there who doesn't know who Toto is. They sing that song Africa that got popular again for some reason. I guess it was in a movie or something. No, no Weezer covered it. Weezer. Oh, okay. If you want to know, yeah. if you real a quick side note, uh, a fan of Weezer's on their website or Twitter or something said they should cover the song and they did it as a joke and it got huge. That's how that happened. Then they even brought out members of Toto to to play, play with them live. Yeah. Yeah. Toto was one of the most talented bands of uh all time that had nothing interesting at all about their music i don't know how you get so talented and so uninteresting well and, and they're they also played on thriller didn't they yeah they did i think i think they are sort of you know what we talked earlier about uh earlier podcasts i keep bringing up stuff about boston being uh you know being tagged with corporate rock i think that's a fair assessment for toto <laughs> it is. not for boston not for boston but it is for toto yeah well, Boston was corporate rock in that yeah, if corporate rock means you sue corporations, that would be, that would be corporate rock. But anyway, I remember uh, having to frequently change the channel when Toto came on during uh, my youth. Marty Pox was also a very good piano player. And he played, a, uh, I think he played like Barbara Streisand and, and uh other guys he he was a very sought after besides being an arranger he was a very good piano player but of course he wasn't gonna get to play piano on this album so and real, people real quick, should uh, probably not continually check back here for a review of barbara streisand albums either <laughs> there's another uh spoiler alert real quick doug <laughs> since you brought up uh uh not listening to toto did you feel the same way anytime the song uh roseanne came on i mean we know how uh we know, or Rosanna, we know how you're feel, you, you had uh, certain things to say about Rosanna Arquette on another episode. I just didn't know if that carried over to that song. I never I never made that connection till just now. But thank you for destroying one of my uh, <laughs> fond memories for my youth. Hey, I like that song. I think that's an all right song. Rosanna? Uh, I don't Rosanna. like that song, but I did like uh, Rosanna Arquette in Execution or song strictly for her uh, performance as an actress. <laughs> Before I uh, have to go buy a doghouse to sleep in, speaking of <laughs> Hank Williams, um, I love you so much. Oh, I love you so much. It hurts me, darling, that's why I'm so blue. I'm so afraid. What a song. <laughs> it hurts. What yeah. Song. I, a, I can't yeah. believe that there's not a thousand country music songs called I Love You So Much It Hurts. Well, this yeah. was this is the second the first of two Floyd Tillman songs on this album. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, he was uh kind of a Nashville before Nashville was really nashville but he was kind of one of the first nashville songwriters and he was associated with the quote-unquote hillbilly songs but he had a little bit more um 
polished to him, I guess you could say. Was, well, he he was a guitarist, and he was his his DNA is really in Western swing. He played with Adolf Hoffner, and he played with Cliff, Cliff Bruner, and he played with uh and uh, Moon Mulliken. Um, yeah. you know, um, yeah, I mean, and he, but he was that's like that thirties and forties. He was kind of the he was one of the main guys that were, were writing these songs. And this song was is the se- I think the second song on this album that was recorded by Patsy Cline, uh, if that tells you anything. And it has, you know, just like the last song that was uh, the re- recorded by Patsy Cline, it has that same feel to it. it yeah. Great Charles isn't the first black artist to do this, though. The Bills Brothers recorded it in 1949 and got to number eight on the pop charts and that- number eight number eight on what they called at the time the race records chart which would uh, <laughs> evolve into the rb you know we're r- real progressive back in 1948 or whatever oh, i would have loved it nobody can blame me for anything but uh yeah the mills if you haven't heard the mills brothers they're fantastic i love yeah. ray's voice on this song i do too the only thing that takes me away from it is the backup vocals it well, sounds let's talk about that too. because that's a serious problem uh, pulling this album from the old days into our days, yeah. I think the number one challenge anybody faces is the background vocals. It's um, it's a problem because we got we got the high priest, Brother Ray, yeah. using his gospel soul deal where he's got the chorus and he's singing. And and then the chorus isn't the chorus. It it turns into um, very uh, I I don't know how to say this. Very white backup singers. Yeah. And, and I, it I, it just does. It sounds. It, it sounds like it's uh, hard to translate to a newer like age. Nelson. Yeah, it sounds like Nelson, Nelson Riddle, Riddle stuff. Yeah. I yeah. don't think I don't think it, it it's too much of a stretch to say that the success of this album. Now, the Nashville sound was already pretty well well ensconced in Nashville at the time this album came out. But this album, people seeing the you know, the, the country music, music in general, music business in general likes to copy trends. This yeah. album was so huge. Um, yeah. I don't know Everybody how copied it, yeah. I don't know how you can say this wasn't uh, directly responsible for country politics. That that 70s schmaltzy kind of as you said very white background choral stuff that happened. Yeah, but um, it seems like you could even take it back to I I could see this is like where the Chet Atkins kind of thing was was the influence. I could see where how this album would have uh, influenced Chet Atkins. Well, it I think just, he was already doing that kind of stuff yeah, though. For, he was. I mean, Patsy Cline was was doing that 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 Nashville sound but this yeah, that doesn't the, the bother way- me as much with anybody else so I yeah. I just I feel like I, I want to uh, go back to the masters and uh, cut some tracks I, yeah. I don't I don't mind it as much as you guys do I know I do I do see how that's it's a hurdle for modern ears um to listen well, it to goes back it harkens back <laughs> to the 40s kind of stuff where you yeah. would have the the crooners sing you know, a lot of the verses and then do a chorus and then the uh, the core, the uh, background singers would take a verse yeah. on their own and the other guy would vamp over that or, or whatever. And yeah. 
uh, it, it's just to me sometimes that's the I guess a little if, if I could take away anything from this album it would be that I would just get I, rid of I if, would just if if you if you could um think just think about this if you could uh redheaded stranger redheaded strang, stranger well, this album and and take that stuff out I, I would listen there, to it so much more than I do now there are songs um, I don't want to jump the gun. There's a song we're going to be talking about here in just a minute that um, I have an issue with for kind of similar reasons you do. You guys have an issue with this song. And there's a version of it without all of that um, stuff involved, right. a live version. And it just it it confirms what you're saying, Doug. Yeah, it yeah. confirms that 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 these songs uh, to modern ears, at least. I mean, there's no <laughs> there's no debating that. To the 1962 ears, this was as 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 great as anybody wanted it to be. I mean, this was such a huge album. Yep. I want to say it knocked um, the soundtrack to. Uh, no, oh, so West Side Story was the I big think, album that year. I think this knocked it off of the top yep. of the charts. I think it. So, I think it knocked it down and it popped it popped back up on the other side of it, if I remember correctly, from doing our research on uh, Bobby Dylan. Um, you might, yeah, you might be right, but I mean that's the thing. This, this, uh, yeah, it, it's. I think it's the it's the context of what's come after this and us listening back on it. But in yeah. 1962, people ate this stuff up. Oh yeah, there's no there's no doubt about it. Like synthesizers in the 80s. Yeah, that that's 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 good. And you know you know what else is really popular at this time? Uh, the uh, soundtrack from breakfast at tiffany's was oh. also in the top with that weird um henry mancini stuff henry yeah. mancini with that background singing that they have and uh oh, you know yeah. henry mancini wrote great songs and that's and and uh moon yeah. river is a great a great song but it's great when um <laughs> what's your face is singing it by herself with the guitar and they don't have all Never. those yeah, Audrey Hepburn's breaking your heart on the porch with the guitar, singing it all by herself without that cheesy background stuff going on. And that's a little bit about what we're talking about. But, you know, I'm tired of all this negativity. Just a little loving. Just a little loving, yeah. We'll go a long way. Well, you make me happy. The rest of my days Why don't you put your arms around me And I'll be your slave Another Eddie Arnold song An- Another another great song uh, Yeah, and this one has that has another great uh, saxophone solo in it But this one's by David Fathead Newman who Is that tra- right? Yeah, he no, plays I know that yeah, David Fathead Newman, uh, he was on this album, and he's the guy who plays the sax, sax solo on this. Um, you know, he played the, the history King for a long time. Yeah. yeah, and the history, you know, Ray Charles got, I don't know if it was his first solo album, but Ray Charles got him in the studio to do a solo album, and I think it was called Ray Charles Presents David Fathead Newman. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, Ray Charles' stamp was on it, and I, th- and I don't think he did that to take credit as much as it would get people interested in buying it. Um, but yeah, this is a good song. Good song. Born yep. to lose. Born to lose. I've lived my life. 
Every dream has only brought me pain. That's a song I can remember hearing my whole life. So, uh, you know, you know, he'd never heard this song before uh, uh, Sid Feller gave him a copy of it. Um, He'd never heard the song, um, which is odd because it wasn't that it was, you know, it wasn't a. Yeah. Uh, here's the here's this is the song that I agree with you guys on. It's a yeah. fine song, but the strings drive me absolutely batty on this song. They they overwhelm the song in a way that takes away from it. And when I was saying about a version of this later, so there's a version of him performing this in the 80s sometime on Austin City Limits and it's just him and the piano and a like a I think a, a, a just a bass and a drum and it's yeah it's incredible it's absolutely yeah. incredible and you hear that and you think what, what what was going through his head again you know hindsight's 2020 this 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 was a huge album so maybe he knew what he was doing maybe we don't but well, uh, well, i mean uh, i was about to compare it to the sam cook album we talked about and uh the thing i love about that sam cook album is how few musicians there are on there and how stripped down it is and uh that's that's wonderful and everything, but who who sold the most records? That's <laughs> yeah. Ray Charles just clobbered that in terms of sales. Yeah. Well, and there are songs on this album that are similar to that approach, where there's yeah. they're a little bit more stripped down and they work really really well. Um, you know, uh, it's just yeah. that some of them like this one. While I do, I love this song. I think this is a great song. Um. It, uh, it it to me it lacks something in this in the heavy use of strings on it. I agree with you. I agree with yeah. you. Yeah. And I, and we're talking about Ray Charles, and he doesn't need that. No, this was the B side. I can't stop loving you. Reached number forty one on the pop charts. Yeah. So I people mean, liked it. <laughs> it's uh. Anyway, worried mind. You promised me love That would never die That promise you made Was only a lie Now after you've gone All alone I'll pine For all that I've got Is a worry uh, So now there, this love is this. The, I love this song So this, this might be my favorite song on the album I, I this think is, it's my favorite And I think I've heard it more than anything else Except I Can't Stop Loving You Yeah. So this song was written by the same guy Who wrote the last song, Ted Daffin yeah. Um, and what's, what's this song has a little bit of a history to it. Um, of course, Bob Wills recorded it. There you go. Another Which mention is, is really important. Of course, he called it the, he called it new worried mind. Bob Wills had a tendency <laughs> to take a song, rearrange it, make it swing and slap new in front of it. Right. Uh, so, uh, but it was first recorded or yeah. made, got, it made a hit by, by this guy named Jimmy Davis. Does anybody know who Jimmy Davis was? Oh, I have no idea. He was uh, he was the governor of Louisiana 
1944 <laughs> to 1948, and again in 1960 to 1964. And he's a guy who, along with um, Happy Ferguson, um, is is the was the influence of uh, the politician in uh, Oh Brother Where Art Thou? Is that right? Well, yeah, because he he, he must have um, come right after Huey Long. Yeah. Well, he he um he 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 was one of the uh, Jimmy Davis was one of the first people to make You Are My Sunshine a hit. Oh yeah. Yeah. So he he had a lot of influence. Um, oh, a lot yeah, of people he's, think he's credited of, as a writer on You Are My he's Sunshine. He's not. He's not the writer though. But he yeah. did exactly with this, like he did with other songs. He bought them from the writers and then Clay, the you know. That's what Elvis did, right? Elvis would buy songs, and then he'd be the writer on the. He'd get the um, yeah, get the credits for that. Um, yeah. anyway. Well, the thing, one of the things I like about this song is this is one of the few that actually, um, I guess there's three songs on this whole album where you actually get to hear Ray Charles play piano. The piano, yeah. And but, I, I love the piano part on this and the way yeah, everything. That, together at the beginning of it yeah you know this song sounds like his song so much it's hard to believe he didn't write this one well it's it's like georgia where yeah you can't who the hell else is gonna sing this song this is ray's song yeah (laughs) well willie does a pretty mean version of georgia on my mind so um but i i I think this is the most section with willie nelson right over your uh, right shoulder I, uh, you're right. He is over my right shoulder. I think, um, I think this is the most country sounding song on this album. I, I think I agree with that. Which is why I like it. Yeah. But that, that piano bridge your country, is your country before uh, country was cool. Yeah. That, but I agree with you, JM. It's, it's so much fun to listen to him play the piano. It's, it's weird that he doesn't do it more often on this. I know. I think every song should just have him vamping on the piano at the beginning of it and then have everybody else come in. But, I didn't produce the album. Uh, and uh, why do you like country music so much, J.M.? Because it's all about heartbreak and it makes you boo-hoo. Well, and, and it's easy to play on what instrument? Oh, the bass. I, <laughs> I like it because it's three chords and the truth. Yeah. <laughs> well, most good country music is, but every now and then some innovator comes in with a relative minor. Yeah, <laughs> that really screws up your one five. Is that? Are you talking about uh, Jerry Lee Lewis marrying his cousin? Is that his relative minor? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That sounds That's like we, everybody's going to accuse us of planning that out. Um, <laughs> makes no difference now. Makes no difference now. What kind of life fate hands me I'll get along without you now it's plain to see Okay this is the song that uh that that Jimmy Davis bought for $300 and and Floyd Tillman ended up getting the rights back to 28 years later uh it's the yeah. first song it's the first song supposedly he ever wrote floyd tillman ever wrote and it led to him that, getting a de- yeah it led to him getting a contract with decca um yeah. but uh again um 
And Tillman was a member of Cliff Bruner's uh, Wanderers, as we talked about before. He's, a, you know, he, this is the second Floyd Tillman song on this album. Um, Bing Crosby had a had a uh, a hit with this. It was was funny about the Bing Crosby. Here we go again. What's funny about the Bing Crosby song is it was the B side to his version of New San Antonio Rose. Oh gosh, <laughs> which was a that, which is a Bob did, Will he song. He did not need to do that. <laughs> it's actually not a bad version, but because. Oh, the, re- the reason it, man, why when Bob after Bob does it, you need to. Well, but the reason why it. is uh, the the great Tommy Duncan and I refuse to say his name without the words the great in front of him. Uh, the great Tommy Duncan was, uh, w- you know, emulated uh, Bing Crosby to a certain extent, so that makes sense that Bing Crosby would record. Bob. Well, let, let's let's. Uh, there's some people here who had the misfortune of being. Uh, t- of living outside of uh, Texas, we need to explain who Tommy Duncan is. He was the lead singer of the Texas Playboys for a very long time. Yeah, uh, probably he had was, the longest tenure. And 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 the uh, the the perfect voice for that music. He did. And, 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 and I, I do talking about Bob Wills tonight, but we can't and, help. And I, he, he was like the John Entwistle of the Who. <laughs> present. I I, uh, I do. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I do take offense at the fact that you used his name without the great in front of it. That's not right. that's that's a no no. It's the great Tommy Duncan. What I want to say about it makes no difference now is this is one of those songs where the the underlying musical uh, track is pretty straightforward, not really crazy, kind of el- underwhelming to a certain extent. But Ray, this is the song I was talking about, Jam, when I said he does these vocal acrobatics. His voice yeah. on this song is just incredible what he does with it. It's so good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, it's just it's it's fantastic. And, and the and the music track is almost just almost non-existent. So, yeah. um, I mean, we don't encourage people to pull songs out. We want everyone to listen to the full album. But pay special close attention to this song, especially Ray's voice on it. It's it's incredible. All right. Now, if you can't be Bob Wills, you might want to be Hank Williams. And he's up next with You Win Again. All over time that you've been seen. Just a running round I know that I Should leave But then I just can't go You win again Uh you know, this song was re- when he rec- when Hank Williams recorded it. It was recorded the day after he divorced Audrey. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. This is another, another one. This is another one where if they got rid of the background singers, I would have been okay with. But it, yeah, it's, it's still it's, a great great version of the song, but he just yeah. Well. The plus side is the strings are fairly subdued in it. So you're right. The background singers do take away from it. But this is the what I think is the second most country song on the album, sounding song on the mm-hmm. album. Well, my um, dad used to sing. In fact, I've played, <coughs> I played guitar behind my dad uh, singing this song at a uh, church function. Oh, Lord, really? Yeah. <laughs> Was it a wedding? <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> 
<laughs> what the wedding? You went, he was you went again. Yeah. That was a bingo. Yeah. A bingo tournament. I, yeah. you know, the thing you said about the vocals, though, I think they, they, while they're a little saccharine and syrupy, they kind of lend themselves in that sort of traditional call and response thing that oh, yeah. is country music, you know. Well, um, it is. It's a, it's but the problem I have with it. It's I love that call and response deal. If I'm listening to Mahalia Jackson. <laughs> or some real gospel stuff but then when you take this guy with a fantastic voice and put him together with the honky yeah. choir I, I just have trouble with that i i, I got it uh yeah it's like i don't know who's saying on bye bye love like why couldn't they have just used those people probably the ray Lutz. might have that sounds like the ray Lutz. i'm guessing oh. that's who it is not uh, the Jordanaires or whoever it is on this stuff. <laughs> Careless love. Love, please tell me what have I done for you to hurt me all in fun. That's a traditional song. It is. This is arranged by Ray. This has the same kind of feel to me that it makes no difference now. It has that very sort of minimalistic yeah. uh, uh, music track to it. This is the one where he oozes like a morning dove. <laughs> I really don't like wordless vocals very much, but the way you that expressed he expressed that earlier on a, uh, yeah. Jackson Brown. Yes. He didn't, yeah, yeah. nothing nice to say about the Eagles he, on that. He didn't like. He doesn't like. He, he doesn't later. like the Eagles ooing like a morning dove. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. If the Eagles were to moo, moo, moo uh, whatever the hell they're doing, like a morning dove. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> imagine them trying to cover this song. No. Ugh. Yep. And there's this uh, other song, uh, a Don Gibson song called "I Can't Stop Loving You." I can't stop loving you I've made up my mind To live in memory Of the lonesome time And Ray Charles does a pretty good job of this song. Y'all, are y'all familiar with this? <laughs> What's the song again? I can't. Yeah. Wait, I can't stop loving you. Oh, I thought this was called the monster because this was a monster hit. Um, this is number one, wasn't it? It yeah. was number one. And, uh, uh, one, I think it uh, won Grammy for best R&B recording. Yeah. Um, it, I'm not uh, sure can find a better interpretation of a song than than this it's not my favorite song on the album but um it is a it's a it's a fantastic uh, it, it deserved there's, to be number one there's, well, a, I'm gonna, there's a handful of uh ray charles songs america yeah. georgia i can't stop loving you I, um hit the road jack I mean, yeah. this is this is one of the top five of, of I, all time. 
I'm going to blow your minds again, guys. Uh, this is the second song in the album after Born to Lose that Ray Charles had never heard before he <laughs> got this. He'd never <laughs> heard this song. Sid wow. Feller introduced him to this, uh, which is, again, kind of interesting because it was, you know, it had been, I, I guess it wasn't that that new. It had been recorded by Don Gibson and Kitty Wells in 1958. They both had, I think they both had minor hits with it. Um, yeah. You know has, what the beat, you know what the, ever walked up and said, excuse me, that's my song you were singing? Yeah. More than this, I mean, I well, here's, I guess, here's an interesting. Uh, Aretha Franklin doing Respect or uh, Gina yeah. Hendrix doing All Along the Watchtower, but this is really, thank you very much, this is my song. So here's the story behind this. You know, uh, Sid Feller didn't think this was that great of a song. That's why he convinced Ray to put it where he did on the sequence of the album. He's like, this yeah. isn't this isn't going to go anywhere. But what Certainly happened was where a hit would go. This guy named uh, this guy named Tab Hunter had recorded a version of it that was identical to Ray Charles's version. And so Ray yeah. Charles is someplace. He's in California or someplace. And he gets a call from Sam Clark, who's the head of the record company he's on. He's on uh, Paramount. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and he said, listen, we got wind that tab Hunter's got a version of this. that sounds exactly like yours. We want to release yours as a single and beat him to the punch. And, really? uh, yeah, and what Ray what Ray said about that conversation that really got to him was not so much that that they wanted to beat Tab Hunter, but that the head of the record company was calling to ask his permission to release it as a single. He's like that that was a, that was a big thing, right? Yeah. And so he, he gave it, and it was released, and then of course it just you know crushed the Tab Hunter version. I mean, crushed it. Uh, that makes me want to watch a Tab Hunter video about him getting crushed. <laughs> that's funny um so we got but, but don gibson has written so many good songs well, you know what the b-side to the single was for don gibson right he wrote he wrote this he wrote the, the song i'm going to mention he wrote at the same time he wrote this oh lonesome me <laughs> i knew he wrote it but i didn't know it was the b-side it was the it was the b-side that i can't stop loving you and they were written around the same time oh man, oh, man. james that would that would cause a person to do something <laughs> <laughs> all right well i like swing music and number six on side two is one swinging tune that i really really enjoy hey good looking what you got cooking how's about cooking something up with me hey sweet baby don't you think maybe we could find us a brand new recipe? I got a brand new In fact, I don't think I can keep my feet still during this tune. Can, can hey, we good looking. A Hank Williams tune. He, can we, two, can we, two minutes and ten seconds. He nailed this. Yep. Absolutely nailed this. You know, Hank Williams kind of dabbled in Western swing, so you just can only imagine if Hank Williams had heard this version, would it be like um, Bob Dylan hearing Jimi Hendrix's version of All Along the Watchtower? And he's like, why well, didn't I? And say, I just lost my song. <laughs> Read the Franklin. Well, thing. No, he, yeah, he owns this song. And, uh, and, and uh, I, you know, I kind of feel like this is, it's weird that it closes it out. It's a great way to close yeah. out the album, but I kind of feel like oh, this is, this song that kind of represents what Ray Charles was trying to do with this album. 
I think I, you should. I think this should have been uh, number one on side two. I agree with you. I mean, it's I, yeah, I think this is man. If if I was an A and R guy and I heard that, I would say that is a hit. That is a hit. That is a hit. Release it, it yesterday and put it on uh, track one of side two. And as as you mentioned earlier, JM, this is one of the songs he gets to show off his piano playing on, and yeah, it's yeah. just we're just incredible. Seems like it lasts forever. But, no, it's, but, not, it's, but, it's, but not in a bad way. No, no, it, not in a bad it's, way it's at all. It's huge. It's it's it sounds it sounds gigantic. It does. Yeah. yeah. I I think you take that hey good looking and mm-hmm. you don't you say goodbye country music and you walk over to the alley that has all the great swing tunes and you throw it down on there and say who wants to play who wants to play? <laughs> and i think you take on every great american swing tune with that song and yeah. you you win i mean it's so good it's so energetic yeah it's so american it's well that, it, that's I don't know if anything sounded more American than that right there. I, 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 well, I think that plays into what I was saying about this song being exactly what he's trying to do. I mean, if he treated these songs like kind of part of the great American songwriting catalog, he nailed exactly. it with this song. This is the song where he's like everything just falls into place and fits yeah. that kind of. It's uh, kind of like he's saying, hey, all you dumb people, how come I'm the first one to do this? Yeah. <laughs> You know, well, you know, this this album was nominated for be- for album of the year, Grammy album of the year, and it lost to the first family, which for those of you who don't know what that is, that was a comedy album uh, about the about the Kennedys. First family uh, Kennedys were John F. Kennedy was president at the time. And uh, it was yeah, it was a comedy album about him and and uh, and his family and the, his cabinet. And it lost to that for album of the year. For wrapping up, one of the things I wanted to mention is for people to try to seek out the performance that he did in October of 79 in Austin City Limits. He was the first black performer to play Austin City Limits. and uh, Which also has a, quite a bit to do with why we're uh, experts. experts. He, he only yeah. played one song off this album. He played Born to Lose. Um, and it's kind of this slow swinging blues. It's great. But he also does on the piano. He plays steel guitar rag on the electric piano, <laughs> and and then and then glides in. Yeah, and then he glides into the chorus of "Long Gone Lonesome Blues," the Hank Williams song, and it's really great. And then he ends the show singing "Deep in the Heart of Texas," which gets a sing along going. "Deep in the Heart of wow. Texas." It's really it's really worth checking out. Um, there's not much video of it online, but there are there are people who've downloaded the audio of it that you can find. Okay. Um, it's really worth checking out. Yeah. We've been all the way back to 1962. I don't know if we'll ever go that far back again, but there's one thing that we do on this podcast to stay relevant with the kids. And, uh, I haven't met any of these kids that I'm always talking about. Everybody that I meet that listens to our show is in their fifties, but for our hypothetical kids that are out there, <laughs> Tony, do you have twenty-year-old Tony? Yeah, give us. You have anything that somebody, maybe even in their forties, might like? <laughs> Someone who's got one foot on the grave, but not yet one on a banana peel. Yeah, what you're saying. We still uh, got the other on uh, solid ground. You know, I'm actually going to talk about something that came out uh, 11 years ago, so it's not that new. 
But when I was trying to figure out something to recommend, this just popped into my head as being sort of a, the same same vein. Let me put it that way. Zeitgeist. Yeah. So um, I've talked about Robbie Folks before. I hope at some point we'll do a Robbie Folks album. But in 2010, he released a, a, an album of nothing called Happy of nothing but Michael Jackson covers. And the reason why that that I think that's pertinent to this discussion is Robbie Folks, for the most part, is known as a folk and country singer. And I mean, he's much broader than that, but he's, he's, he br- butters his bread by doing that kind of stuff. So he put out this album of Michael Jackson songs, and it's great. There's a lot of songs on there that kind of sound or are, are, you know, pretty um, loyal to the rendition that the Jackson 5 did. But like the very first song, Going Back to Indiana. I'm going back to Indiana, back to where I started from. I'm going back to Indiana, Indiana, here I come. I spread my wings for greener pasture. I still ain't found what I was after is uh, a country-fied version of that song that he does and it's great um the uh farewell my summer love is fantastic his version of that is fantastic it's a really really fun 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 album uh and it just makes you realize uh regardless of what else you think about michael jackson how great these songs were you know um but I i highly recommend it it's a lot a lot of fun it's called Happy, Robbie Folks. Check it out. Yep. Well, we're all we're all in favor of Happy here. <laughs> well, that's it for tonight's show. Next week we'll be looking at the 1974 album made by Van Morrison, Beat on Fleets. I'm kicking off from Centerfield. Question I'm being down for the game. One shot deal don't matter And the other one's the same Oh my friend I see you Be sure to look us up on Facebook We're also on Instagram And of course we're on Twitter at Tapping Vinyl and you can email us at tappingvinyl at gmail.com. Please leave us a note, leave us a review, give us a star rating, and let us know what albums you would like for us to consider reviewing in an upcoming episode. And if you know of anyone that likes music and the LP format, be sure and let them know about our podcast. We would love to get the word out. For our host, Doug Cooper, newly married. Our co-host, Tony Slagle, longtime married. And me, your humble producer, not married, Jonathan. Uh, you've been Abro. married more than anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> this is Final Tap. <laughs> We all the podcasts go to 11. And on behalf of all of us here at This Is Final Tap, we love you much too much. 
It reminds me of that <laughs> album I used to get from Columbia Records where I thought it had all the hits from the year. It was called The Originals, and I thought it <laughs> meant original singers. But it was some cheesy band playing all the hits from the year. Oh, really? Yeah, I hope Jay didn't cuss that part because that's embarrassing. I fell for that. Um, 